outside of Justin's obvious talents at the piano and his voice, one of the most amazing talents I've ever seen of being able to set the stage for what it is we're about to share. What you'll see this morning, based on all that we have just sung a moment ago, and please do not forget what was just sung, to at some point throughout today, based on what you're about to hear this morning, to look up again the words to that song and listen to it, a song called The Blessing. Father, there are times in our lives when we're really honest and we don't understand your plan. What we ask for, what we would like to see, hasn't happened the way we'd ask and we don't understand. And so as we begin to explore that this morning and unpack it, speak to us, speak through me, help me to be able to understand what you want to teach me. And in this position, I trust that, Father, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart are acceptable in your sight and that you will speak to us in ways that maybe only we will hear in a sentence or two or a paragraph or through the entire message. But please, Father, I need your help and I want you to be able to communicate to all of us today to meet us at the point of our need, our circumstances and situations that we really don't understand. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Justin. That was absolutely perfect. If you look at the sermon title this morning, you will probably find yourself saying, I'd rather not discuss this. Because to be really honest with you, I don't like the times when God seems to say no. I mean, I thought the Bible told me that I could ask anything that I want and he would do it. And if you look throughout Scripture, the New Testament and all the words of Jesus, you will see him say that on a number of occasions. Ask me what you want. Tell me what you want me to do. On a number of occasions when people came to him, that's one of the statements he said to them. What do you want? What are you looking for? What do you want me to do? And then he asked that, saying that, asked, shares that same sentence to us on a number of occasions. Ask me what you want. What do you want me to do? What are the circumstances I can intervene in? And yet there are times in your life and my life that we're really honest about our circumstances where we did just that. And it didn't come out the way we thought it would. And we did ask what we wanted. But it didn't seem to answer the way we wanted. I mean, I've read sections of Scripture where he said, Now, be like the, the lady who banged on the door of the judge's chamber and keep asking and asking over and over again. And even that unrighteous judge granted her request. So keep coming to the Father. So I found myself in circumstances, and maybe you have as well, where I did just that. I obeyed that section of Scripture. I kept coming and I kept asking and asking and asking and asking. And yet what I asked for didn't come true. Or what I was asking him to do didn't become reality. What I had to be reminded of myself and what I've reminded you on occasions is one of the things we always have to keep in mind is that Scripture isn't confined to a sentence or two or a phrase or two or a chapter or two. But it's a book, an amazing story of God's interaction with humanity. And you know and I know that there are times that God has worked in the most unbelievable ways and some of the greatest lessons he has taught us is when God intervened in the impossible. When man said it's not going to happen, there's no way it can, they're not going to live, it's not going to change, they won't become this or that. And yet you know and I know that God intervened in ways that no one else could explain or understand, but it was God. And you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God intervened in that situation and you walked away from that stunned and amazed. 
by the hand of God and how he worked in that circumstance or situation. But if you're really honest, you also know there are times in life when God taught you maybe some of the greatest lessons when he didn't do what you ask. And it didn't come true even though you kept coming. And what you wanted him to do didn't become, from your vantage point, reality. While I was preparing this message in the last two weeks, it's been burning in my heart. I had an email come across my desk, and I try to read a lot of them, and there are some great articles, and depends on who you who were sending it to you, and I opened it up, and it was a, a message from John Ortberg. John Ortberg is a pastor that many of us know, and some of the books that he has written, some of the greatest books that I've read are from John Ortberg. He used to be on a teaching schedule with Bill Hybels in Willow Creek, and now on his own. I wrote an article entitled, Don't Waste a Crisis. And so knowing what I was going to do today, I began to read it, and this is how he started. I was once a part of a survey on spiritual formation. Thousands of people were asked when they grew the most, spiritually speaking, and what contributed to their growth? The response, to be honest with you, was humbling and not what I expected to one who works in a church. The number one contributor to spiritual growth wasn't transformational teaching. I thought it would be. It wasn't being in a small group or reading deep books, being in energetic worship experiences, or finding meaningful ways to serve. The number one contributor to spiritual growth for those who fill out the article was suffering. People said they grew more during seasons of loss, pain, and crisis than at any other time. Over the last few weeks, we've been in James chapter 5. I'd like you to turn there for a moment this morning because out of that section of Scripture, to me stood a question that James doesn't answer here specifically and doesn't even ask. But I have asked, and I've had it asked of me on a number of occasions. And this morning, I want to address that issue. In James chapter 5, James has been talking about the issue of healing. We've been there for a while, and for the next few weeks, we're going to finish this chapter. And actually, in A few weeks on January the 4th or July the 4th, we're going to do something we only do once a year here. We're going to finish a book. There's some powerful things that I think James wants to teach us in just these last few verses. And obviously over the last few weeks, we've been on some as well. James begins one of the final pieces with verse 13 that says this. Is any one of you in trouble? Let him pray. Anyone happy? Let him sing. Anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. The question that stood out to me that I want to ask that maybe you're asking or at least has come to your mind every once in a while, what happens when he doesn't? How do I respond? What do I do when I do exactly what he says here? When I'm sick and I come, when I'm sick and I call, when I'm sick and I stand here and I ask the elders to do exactly what James tells me to do, they pray over me, they anoint me with oil, And they pray over me a prayer of faith. And it says the Lord will raise him up. What happens when he doesn't? Because let's be really honest. You know and I know that a lot of us have been in those experiences of life where we've done exactly what James says. We've walked through the process that he teaches us here in this context. And we've been here in this moment. And yet what we asked for in that context didn't happen. And when we ask the Lord and we said that the Lord will raise him up, he doesn't. What do we do? Have you ever wondered that or is it just me? Have you ever been in those situations where you've done exactly what you believe Scripture is asking you to do and you walk through circumstances like this and you know what you'd love to see God do and somebody answers you in some way or the other that, well, maybe he's working in ways you don't see, but to be really honest with you, that's not what you asked. 
You did exactly what he asked you to do, but yet in that circumstance and in that situation, the Lord didn't raise him up and the Lord didn't change the circumstances. How do you respond to that? What do you do when you pray? When you talk to God, when you ask him what you want him to do, and yet he doesn't seem to do what you ask him to do. What do you do and how do you respond when God seems to say no? Now maybe you've dealt with this topic before. I don't ever remember dealing with it. But when I looked at this section of scripture, I felt at least in my context it begged an opportunity for us to explore it. And begin to look at what happens and how we respond when what it is that we ask God to do, he didn't seem to do in that context. How do we react? How do we respond? What does it do to our faith? There are a couple of immediate sections of Scripture that came to my mind. One was in 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul, one of the most powerful messengers of God in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, there's an unusual section of Scripture where Paul is struck by a messenger of Satan, it's called, to, to buffet him. And as the sentence goes on, or the structure goes on, it says, I asked God three times to take it away. And he didn't. I asked God not once, not twice, three times, take it away. I don't want to do this. None of us know what it is. We have all kinds of speculation as to what his thorn in the flesh may be, bad eyes to a bad wife. I've heard everything. Three times I asked God to take it away from me. And in each occasion, whether it was once or twice or the third time, maybe after Paul asked, God said, I just want you to know that it's not going to happen. But I'm telling you this, my grace will be sufficient in your weakness. And Paul said, okay. What fascinated me about that is that Paul not only knew about healing, Paul had healed. I mean, Paul not only talked about healing and preached about healing, Paul had the amazing gift of healing. There was one occasion in Paul's ministry life where he was so hot, ministry was going so well, that when he would wipe the sweat off of his brow after preaching with intensity, ever been in a service when a pastor just preached with so much intensity? Every once in a while, you ought to go to a black church. I'm just telling you right now. Some of the most amazing experiences of my life is to watch them preach and to watch them sing. They do it from their soul. They just powerful passion. I remember a council a couple years ago, a pastor was up there preaching. And he was dampening his brow through the entire occasion. I was actually hot for him. He was on so much fire. Paul at one point in his ministry life was so on fire with God that he would wipe the sweat off his brow and someone would take that handkerchief and lay it on somebody that needed healed and they were healed. Now that's a good day in ministry. I'm just telling you, that's a good day in ministry when they can take your handkerchief, lay it on somebody who needs to be healed and they're healed. And yet Paul finds him in this situation where now he's the one needing healing. Begging God, not once, not twice, but three times to take it away. And God doesn't. God answers him. Which, if we're really honest, in some cases we don't always have the answer. But God said no. But I do want you to know, my grace will be more than you need, more than enough. The one that came to my mind that I want to concentrate on the most this morning is in 2 Samuel. If you know anything about David's life, he's one of the most fascinating creatures in all the Old Testament. More is written about him and more writing from him. And most other authors, except Moses, and he writes with such power and thunder and enthusiasm that I sometimes can't get enough of his writings. There's a story about him found in 2 Samuel chapter 12 where a little boy that he and Bathsheba had was about to die. 
God had told him that was going to happen based on what had happened before that, the sin that he and Bathsheba participated in, and Uriah's life was cost as a result of that, and God said, I just need you to know. It's going to cost you more than that. But in 2 Samuel chapter 12, God begs God to change, David begs God to change his mind. He comes to him and prays. Day after day, night after night, it says in 2 Samuel 16, he pleaded with God for the child. He fasted, spent nights on the ground, lying in sackcloth. But on the seventh day, the child died. The story continues in verse 18, and where it says, David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, what if the child, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke? What's he going to say now when the child is gone? He may do something desperate. David overheard his attendants speaking, and so he said to them, is he gone? He said, yes, he's dead. David got up from the ground, he washed, put on lotions, changed his clothes, went to the house of God and worshiped. Then he went to his own house at his request. They served him food, and he ate. The tenant said to him, David, we don't understand why you're acting this way. When the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that he's gone, you get up and eat. David said, while the child was alive, I fasted, and I thought, who knows? Maybe God may be gracious to me and change his mind and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he won't return to me. Three incredible lessons stood out from this that I want to share with you that I'd love for you to write down somewhere on the side of your notes in your bulletin or in your Bible. Three things that David did in this context of Scripture that I think stand out in all time for us to do when we come to those circumstances and situations where we don't know what to do. The answer isn't what we want, and we need to know how to respond. The first one is simply this. You go to God for healing. When someone is sick, you pray. James has been saying that to us over the last few weeks in this context, and so that's why we've asked God to do that. I go to God for the impossible. And I think he tells us that all the way through Scripture. When someone is sick, you pray. doesn't matter how difficult, how uncertain, no matter what the doctors say, no matter how impossible the situation or circumstances, there's nothing that I haven't asked God to do. No situation, no mountain, no high enough, nothing that I have not asked God to do. Others have told me I'm crazy. Others, I'm sure, have told you you're crazy. The doctor said it's not going to happen. The doctor said it's not going to turn around. The doctor said you won't live. But David said I went to God. And so the challenge to me, every time I find a situation that I don't understand and I wish would turn around, I go to God. And I ask him to heal. I ask him to intervene. I ask him to change the circumstances. Nothing wrong with that. You go to God for healing. The second thing you'll notice in this section of Scripture is that when David prayed and it didn't happen the way he wanted, you see an unusual response that many of us don't always do. And that is, he worshipped. He got up, changed his clothes, went to the house of God and worshipped. You go to God for healing, you go to God for comfort. Sometimes that'll be a circumstance in your life where that'll make it difficult for you. The last time I was in church is when I buried my friend. The last time I was in church is when I buried my dad. The last time I was in church is when I buried my child. Right now, to be really honest with you, Pastor, that's the last place I want to go. Can I say this in love and tenderness? That may be the first place you need to go. As difficult as it may be, as hard as it may be for you, if you were there at that moment and it was one of the most painful experiences of your life and you really did beg God and plead God like that pleading widow, banging on the door, asking God to desperately change the circumstance or situation and it didn't happen that way and now some pastor is standing up telling you to go to worship? 
telling you, it's one of the best things you could do. Because you'll find in God things that you will find in no one else and no place else. Lori Wilson sent me an email this week, and every once in a while, depending on the author who's written it or who's sending it to me, I'll open them up. I get an enormous amount of emails, and I read this one. I found it fascinating, and if you want it, I'd love to send it to you. It's from all people, Chris Tomlin, who is the author of one of the songs we sang this morning. He said, what intrigues me about the people of God throughout the entire Old Testament, when I look at hundreds and hundreds of years of Old Testament history, the things the people of God talk to God about. Matter of fact, they came to God and said, where are you? I've been calling for a long time. Do you not see how desperate I am? Why haven't you answered? Where are you? Do you not listen? Are you not listening now? Now, many of us in this auditorium this morning would probably be afraid to do that. I'm not going to talk to God like that. I'm going to get struck with lightning. Why is it so easy for the people of Israel to do that on a regular basis? God can handle your frustration. (laughs) God can handle your disappointments, even in him. What was so fascinating about that article was he said, one of the things that they somehow seemed to know is that their relationship with God was never going to change based on the questions they had of God. They felt so comfortable with the God of the universe that they could ask him anything and tell him anything and get their anger out and knew that their relationship with him wasn't going to change. You know and I know, relationally speaking, with the people around us, sometimes the thing that we fear the most when we want to either confront them or ask them about a situation is we're not sure enough of the relationship to be able to handle the challenge. And so sometimes that's why we just choose to not say anything. People of Israel didn't worry about that. They were so comfortable in their relationship with God that they knew there was no other place to go but God. So they came to him with all their questions and all their issues and all their frustrations and all their circumstances. And they told him. And what I love about David is as difficult as it may be is that he went to God to worship. He went to God for comfort. He went to God to heal his soul. The danger if you don't do that is that you end up going further and further away. The third thing that stands out in this section of Scripture is in verse 23. When David simply says, as his answer to the question of the attendants, I don't get it. Why did you do what you did? He answered this in verse 23. Can I bring him back again? I can go to him, but he won't return to me. Go to God for healing. We go to God for comfort. And we go to God for hope. One of the things that makes Christianity different than any other religion in the world is the hope we have in Christ. One of the things that makes us stand out over every other religion on this planet is the hope we have, the absolute certainty we have in the future. And knowing what God has promised us will be reality. But the same God who walked all the way through Scripture and made amazing promises is the same God that will absolutely keep the promise he made to us about heaven. Very little describes heaven on a regular basis, but you watch Jesus walk through Scripture, and especially near the end of his life, and he very wonderfully prepares us for the future. There are a number of terms for heaven all the way through Scripture. One is the sky and the stars and the sea. The other is the thing that sometimes means the, the presence of God. But the one thing that I want to talk about this morning in this context here for a moment is the one that means the abode of God. Heaven, the place where God dwells. Heaven, the place where God will take us 
when we leave this world. Heaven that David promised, that David talked about, that David knew about, that David went to God about. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Father who art in heaven. It is from heaven that Christ came. It is heaven that he went. It is a heaven that God is preparing a place for us someday. It's from heaven that Jesus talked about, or about heaven that Jesus talked about in John 14 when he came to his disciples and said, I just want you to know right now I know you're worried. Right now I know your heart's about to explode. But I'm telling you, I'm leaving at a very good time and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I come back, I'll receive you unto myself and I'll take you with me and we'll be there forever. I love Keith Green, who for years ago has written a number of ballads. But one thing in front of one of his songs, and I can't even remember the song, he said this. Can you even imagine the splendor and majesty of this world that God's created? What it must look like if he spent six days doing that and over 2,000 years preparing heaven. What it must be like. Which is why then Paul said in 1 Corinthians, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. There are a lot of people who try. Books that have been written. Randy Alcorn's book is a great book about heaven. Corky Snodgrass gave me a great little book this week or a couple of weeks ago, a little five to six-year-old boy called Heaven is Real. And I read his story. And there's a lot of people who have tried to get some insights as to what it looks like and what it's all about. But I still go back to what Paul said. I'm just telling you, no mind can actually describe it. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can fully grasp what God has prepared for those of us who love him. But I'm telling you, as sure as I'm standing behind this pulpit and on this carpet and in this place today, God has it ready for you and I who believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And he's gone to prepare that place and he said, I will come again and take you with me and we'll be there forever. Paul describes it in Thessalonians when he said, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye we'll be caught up together with the Lord in the air and so we'll be forever with the Lord. The same author that wrote John 14 writes John 21 and he tells us that one of the most amazing things we'll ever see is the new heaven and the new earth that God has prepared for us to those of us who love him. To those of us who know and understand what's going to take place someday, he writes these words. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. God gave me a glimpse of the future. He said, it took my breath away. The first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. I heard a loud voice of heaven saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and will dwell with them and be his people and God will be with them forever. He'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things are passed away. I'll make everything new. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To anyone who is thirsty, anyone who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost to the spring of the water of life. Every single time I do a funeral on the over 300 and some funerals that I've done, one of the greatest, most noticeable differences that I see is when those who are either going through it or have gone through it know absolutely certain about that person's position with Christ and what happens when they don't. This weekend, I had the opportunity to do few, two funerals, one on Friday and, and one last night here in the sanctuary, and I'll do another one on Tuesday. The thing that stood out to me as I began this section of Scripture and I was walking through this context is watching the family of someone who knew for certain that Jesus Christ was our Lord and Savior. But even more fascinating was Bertha herself, the funeral that I did on Friday. A couple of weeks ago, I went to the hospital to see her before we went to Kansas City to counsel, and I just wanted to make sure she was okay. And as I walked in, there was no one else in the room. She said, hey, come here, sit down. And when Bertha tells you to sit down, you sit down. She said, I want you to know I am so ready for heaven 
You can't believe it. I am so ready to meet Jesus, you can't even imagine it. I want you to know how ready I am to meet Jesus. And she began to tell me the story of her testimony. When she accepted Christ as her Savior, and she said, I am absolutely certain the moment I leave this world, I'm going to see God face to face. To be really honest with you, she said, I'm tired. I'm really tired and I want to go home. My family doesn't want me to right now, but I want to go home. And by the end of the next two weeks, her family was more than ready to let her go home. When I did her funeral on Friday afternoon, I was absolutely certain the moment she left this world, she saw Jesus face to face. I'll tell you, I've been in situations, and you have, I'm sure, as well, with people who didn't have that certainty, when they really weren't sure. A lot of us wonder, and a lot have tried to describe what heaven looks like, and I still go with what Paul said. No one can absolutely try to put it into words, what's there. But I am absolutely certain that's what God has in reserve for us. So when I'm sick, I go to God for healing. When I'm walking through circumstances I don't understand, I go to God for comfort, and I'm, comfort, and I'm telling you, when God says something or does something that I, doesn't, I don't know or understand or wish he wouldn't, I am absolutely certain that when I go to him for hope, I have it. And that's what David did. That's what separates us from every other relationship on the planet, with every other religion on the planet. The incredible future that God has for us will be amazing. And so I go to him for that hope. When you look at the story of David, you find yourself saying, it really is not that easy. And it's not. I mean, you look at the circumstances here, and it looks like the child died. David got up, took a shower, ate a sandwich, and went to church. But you know and I know it's not that easy. But to be really honest with you, it is possible. It is possible to find hope, healing, and comfort when the answer to physical healing is no. Pain and sorrow don't automatically bring those things unless we seek it from the only one who can give it to us. And there can be some powerful things that God wants to teach us, show us, reveal to us, do for us and through us if we'll let him, even if the answer is no. One of the things that I want to share with you this morning, to keep in mind when either you go through pain or difficulty or some things, some people that you know is walking through a deep valley. I just want to give you some encouragement and give you some advice and some things that I've learned and some things that I've found and discovered this week that I think helps. Because whether you've been there or not, you will be. None of us escape it. It may not be as severe for you as others, but every single one of us in this room, at one point or the other in our spiritual journey, are going to go through a situation or a circumstance that we don't understand, that we wish were different, and we desperately need help and direction and encouragement. So let me give you some pieces of advice. Some of it I borrow from John Ortberg. When someone is in a crisis, my encouragement to you and to them is to not teach, not explain, just be. At one point or the other in all of your relationships with people, when you come to those circumstances or situation when someone is walking through really deep waters and you don't always know what to say, most times you'll find that people don't need a sermon or a story, they just need you perhaps the single most disobeyed command the apostle paul ever wrote wartburg says is to mourn with those who mourn you see he doesn't say give good advice to those who mourn he doesn't say tell the mourners to suck it up because a lot of people have it worse than you he just simply says mourn with those who mourn in a crisis especially in a deep crisis you may not be able to bring all the answers but what you really can bring is presence you can just be there when they go through difficult circumstances. 
A number of years ago, my wife's brother, and I asked her permission to share it. Randy died at age 42, 41, on all days, her birthday. We had been praying for him for a long time, had a number of issues, non-Hodgkin lymphoma for sure. We asked God to heal. We asked God to intervene. We asked God to restore. We asked God to bring him through the crisis. And God had done some amazing things in his life, but we really, more than anything else, after her mom had gone, her dad had passed away, and almost every member of her family had gone, we hated to see her siblings at that age leave. But on that day, June 20th, her birthday, he passed away. More than anything else that day that stands out in my mind like a postcard that will never leave my head, I hope, is 20 or 30 minutes later after finding it out, Bill and Donna from our church here came on a picnic table up around our house and just sat with us. They didn't come with magic answers, didn't come with a lot of platitudes, didn't come with a lot of verses. They just came. We sat, we talked, we shared memories, we talked about Randy, and we prayed and they left. And I said, one of the things out of all that circumstance that I'll never forget is just the fact that you were there. When Job of the Old Testament found himself in the most unbelievable circumstance that anyone else has ever known, where he lost his family, all of his family, where he lost his wealth, he lost his possessions, he lost his health and almost lost his life. One of the things that we don't always remember in that context of circumstances is that he was surrounded by his friends. Their love was so strong, their grief was so great that they sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. No one of them said a word because they saw how great his suffering was. What's interesting about the context is that what they're most known for is what they said, and what they said was the wrong things. Ortberg said, their words may not have been so great, but their silence was brilliant because their silence was a gift. You see, you can't mourn in a hurry. All the technology of MIT can't microwave the healing of the human heart. One of the ironies of a crisis is that often we feel that we don't have enough time to deal with the circumstances only to find that when a crisis hits, we have a lot of time. A man is so caught up in the demands of his career that he simply doesn't have time to devote to his marriage until his wife leaves him. Then he's got a lot of time. Until divorce takes massive amounts of money and he spent hours and days in court with lawyers, he suddenly finds himself with all kinds of time. A pastor is so busy with his church that he simply doesn't have time to be with his teenage daughter until she runs away from home. Now he has time. He spends every day in prayer and tears, checking with the police, talking with counselors. You see, if there's not enough time to deal with the small crises, eventually the pace of your life will create a larger one, and then you will have time. You see, crisis is a temporary opportunity for a permanent gift. The things that God wants to do you, either in you or through the people around you. Crisis also reminds me, goes on to say, that control and circumstances is an illusion. One of the most misquoted verses you'll ever find or never find in the New Testament is this. God will never give you more than you can handle. Anybody know where that's at? It's not in Scripture. The Bible doesn't say that. Poverty, genocide, war, failure, mental illness, people are given more than they can handle all the time. The Bible does say that no temptation is given to people without a way out. But that's about temptation, not adversity. The Bible does not promise that you will only be given what you can handle. But it does promise this. You will never be placed in a situation that God can't handle. So tell them. 
Go to God for healing. Go to God for comfort. Go to God for hope. You see, God isn't at work producing circumstances that I want. God's at work in my bad situation and my circumstances that I wish would change to produce in me what he wants. But I've got to let him do it. If you had the opportunity to have in front of you the script of your child's life, and you had five minutes to edit it, what would you take out? A lot of us would take out pain and suffering and circumstances that we wish were different. But he goes on to say, if you could erase every failure, disappointment, and period of suffering, would that be a good idea? Would that cause them to grow into the best version of themselves? You see, it is possible that we actually need adversity and setbacks, even a crisis every once in a while, to reach who we really were intended to become. You see, Paul seemed to think so. He went on to say that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so in, a, in our rejoicing, but also in our sufferings. Because we know that many times suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character. and Character produces hope. And that hope will never, ever disappoint us. When you go through pain and sorrow, let me remind you of something that, I, that maybe you know, but I would hope you never forget. And certainly don't pass over. And that is the care and compassion of the people that God brings in and out of your life. You ever had someone care for you or your family? Cherish it. And if you can, thank them for little things done with great love having an incredible effect on people. Many of us, I'm sure, in the room have had people walk into our lives when we're going through difficult circumstances and say, what can I do? And if we're really honest, in the middle of that circumstance, we don't always know what to say and And so we say, I'll let you know. Can I just give you a word of encouragement in all these years of ministry and walking through crisis? Tell them. What do you want them to do? What do you need most at that moment? After never missing a day of sick and and never missing a day of sickness or illness and never ever missing a service in 32 years, two years ago I found myself in intensive care. If you're going to do it right, you might as well end up there. And within 20 minutes after landing there, Brian and Ray J showed up. I don't even know how they knew or how they got there so fast. But just their presence was everything I needed. When they came out, people came and and in and out of our lives, I'll never forget what Tim and Pam did for me. Jim Taylor brought me hunting magazines. What a great thought. (laughs) People that I'm sure in your life have come into your life and they've said, what can I do? And you don't always know what to say, but if you can think of something, tell them. Remember, we had this discussion with Erin last night after her having a couple of miscarriages, and she said there were so many times when we were going through deep waters that people thoughtfully came to us and said, can I do this? And she thought, that's a great response. Instead of what can I do for you, and I'm numb and I don't know what to say, they came to me proactively saying, could I do this? Could I do that? What about this? What about that? And she said, if you had the opportunity tomorrow, say, that's a great idea. Ask them, what can I do for you? And then be creative enough to think of what it may be. And if you're the person on the other end, be honest enough to say, I don't need anything right now. I'm okay. Maybe it's just a meal. Maybe it's a a, a note. Maybe it's to cut their lawn. I talked to Bill and Donna the other day when they went through the loss of Courtney, their daughter. Someone came to Bill and said, what can I do? Bill said, you can cut my grass. (laughs) Because he said, I've been in and out of the hospital and I don't know what to do. And so the guy went and cut his grass. 
If you're one of those in the healthcare field, and, and I know there are many here this morning, I see Dr. Samuels and her nurses and doctors all over this room, people work in healthcare, people work in the mental health field. I, I want to say on behalf of all of us who have walked through those circumstances, and many in this room who have walked through it, thank you so much for your care and compassion of people. In the last couple of days, in the last few years, when I walked through VNA Hospice over in Benbrook and I went to VN, or, uh, Hospice over in Concordia, Everything I heard from the people who were there were absolutely stunned by the love and compassion and concern of the people in those places. If you're one in the healthcare field, no one has ever said thank you so much for your love and your tenderness and your grace and your compassion. When my aunt, my mom, my sister, my child went through those circumstances, I hope someone said thank you so much. In all these years of ministry, one of the most difficult places for me to go is pediatric pediatric intensive care they call it PICU you go to children's hospital and you walk through a particular section and you see so many people there and you obviously see children but when you go into a pediatric intensive care and you see these wee little babies wired up in ways that no human being should ever have to go through and the tenderness and love of the nurses and the doctors astound me and then I've been on the other end of life when I've been in nursing homes and I've been in VNA sections like that and and hospice care and I've seen love and compassion and tenderness shown on someone at the end of life I thought what a great calling what a great calling to be there to heal the human soul or to be a part of the human body and being able to bring comfort and love and tenderness and compassion never ever ever underestimate your gift and never underestimate the opportunity you have in those circumstances if you're in that field to touch someone else's life at the deepest, darkest moment of their life. Share with them your love, your tenderness, and compassion. Even if you don't know what to say, at least bring your presence. You don't have to have a sermon. Please don't tell a story. Just say, I love you. I'm praying for you. I care about you. I'd love to do this if I can. Call me when you need me. And if you're one of those who had someone tell you that, call them when you need them and let them know what they can do. One of my favorite interactions of Jesus and disciples is almost in an obscure piece. It quickly comes and goes in the middle or near the beginning of the Gospel of John. It happens so fast we almost overlook it, and I think it's one of the ones that stand out to me like a neon sign. It's when Jesus is sharing and teaching a thousand people or thousands of people who are listening to his stories and he is honestly saying to them i just want you to know if you're going to follow me this is tough you're going to be a follower of mine this is what it's going to cost you i just want you to know and what was interesting about that is many people said i don't think i can do that and they began to walk away and jesus looked at his disciples and said are you leaving too and peter said one of the most astounding statements in all of scripture and he said this where else can i go because you and you alone had the answers to life go to God for healing go to God for comfort go to God for hope because he and he alone has it even when he said no it's the absolute best place to go father I thank you for your amazing grace I thank you for the power of your word and the lessons you teach us the times that we find ourselves in situations we'd rather avoid. In circumstances we wish didn't happen, dealing with death we wish we didn't have to go through. 
dealing with sickness and illness when we don't understand. And, and yet, Lord, I, I'm so grateful for your word. Because at times the answer isn't what we want. But we do know that we can find you in the midst of our pain, our circumstances and situations, and know that you're more than sufficient and more than enough. So it's you and you alone that we count on and we lean on. We ask you for your guidance and grace for all of us in this room who go through those dark hours of the soul when we're not sure what to do. And I trust that you'll bring us to yourself and you'll teach us the lessons you want us to learn and through that we'll become all that you want us to be. For it's in you and you alone we trust. In your name, amen.